Welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church in Wilson, Oklahoma, preaching the weekly teaching and preaching ministry of the church. We are grateful that you are choosing to join us today. Our prayer is that you are blessed by today's study of God's Word, and your heart will be receptive to what God desires to teach you today. For more information about FBC Wilson, please visit our website at fbcwilson.org. We hope you enjoyed today's service, and we look forward to studying God's Word with you today. Again, good morning to you all this morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. When you come in and you get one of those bulletins, there's always notes on the back of that that will guide our time through the Word this morning. So Mark chapter 5. I appreciate you, Greg, and those who serve with you in leading us in worship um, I haven't been here as long as many of you have, but it is a treat and it's a privilege and it's a delight to see young people growing up in the church and see voices growing up in the church. It was uh, the spring of 2020 um, that uh, when um, search committee and I were talking and so um, you were doing your due diligence upon me and I was doing my due diligence upon you and there was a church service that you all were broadcasting um, during that spring of 2020 where Kinsey did a special and uh, just to see the maturity of the voice from 2020 to now it is just a cool thing and it's a really cool thing to think about that we as a church have the privilege and the high honor to be able to watch these young people grow up into this faith family. So thank you, Greg, for doing that. Thank you especially to you, Karina and Kenzie, for leading us in that song. Mark Mark chapter 5 is where we're going to be at during our time together in the Word this morning. We have been walking through the gospel according to Mark, and we've been walking through Mark looking at um, Mark giving the message of the church. He is revealing who Christ is. This is uh, just another, uh, another step in the Gospels. You have the four Gospels. All four Gospels represent Christ, Jesus Christ, from a different perspective. They show different things about Jesus Christ. You will find similarities amongst the Gospels, but each Gospel writer has, a, has maybe a, a certain niche or a certain specific thing they are trying to highlight and a specific thing they are trying to show. And so Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels, and as he he comes in, he's, he's presenting Christ. He's saying, this is who Christ is. And he's presenting it not only to the Romans that's primarily written for, but he's writing it to the church to say, this is what you say about Jesus. And this is what Jesus is when we go out and tell other people about Jesus. So he, as, I, as I've told you before, he, he sometimes he's focused on the individual in the church, and then sometimes he's focused on who Jesus is and different aspects of who Jesus is. And this morning, we're continuing on as he is putting some focus on who Christ is. And if you're here several weeks ago in Mark chapter 4, he's talking about the sovereignty, the authority, the power of Christ, and he begins to present it on who Christ is in the last part of Mark chapter 4, talking about um, how Jesus Jesus has authority. He has sovereignty over all of creation. And you see him calming the storms and that um, taking place. And then last week, um, there at the beginning of Mark chapter 5, he is there getting off the boat and he's looking at the demoniac. And Mark is saying, hey, this guy, Jesus Christ, he's not just a carpenter's son. He is not just a man. He's not just a religious teacher. He is not just a rabbi. He is the Messiah. And as he's pointing this, he says the proof of it is that he has power, authority over creation. He has power, authority over the demonic. 
Next week, he's going to talk about how he has power and authority over death. But this week, he's going to focus in on the power, the authority, the sovereignty of Christ over the physical. So he starts there. We're going to pick it back up in Mark chapter 5 uh, and verse 21. He's going, to re, he's going to set two scenes, two stories, if you will, just for the sake of context. We're going to start in verse 25, but the story about Jairus' daughter will end next week. So starting in Mark chapter 5 and verse 21, Mark continues in his account and he says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Now, we're going to come back as we get there to verse 35. He picks this back up. But right here, starting in verse 24, he puts a little bit of a sub-story in the bigger story going on. So notice how we're going. Jesus was uh, there on one side doing ministry. He crossed the other side. And at the end of chapter 4, that's when the storm arose. He gets out of there, um, heals the demoniac, and then he leaves and goes to another side of the Galilee Sea. And now he gets out here in chapter, or chapter 5 and verse 21. So he's on his way to go see the daughter of Jairus. And yet in verse 24, notice what Mark writes. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, he immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You, you, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I pray that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. Scene opens up here in Mark chapter 5 and starting in verse 21. Jesus gets out of the boat. Jairus comes up and says, I have a sick daughter. Please come and heal her. Jesus is on his way to go see the daughter. And on his way, there are great, as Mark said, there are great throngs of people. Throngs is just a, a word we don't use a lot, but it was a heavily crowded area. There were people all around. There were people pressing in from all areas. And as Jesus is going, there comes the woman. And so as Mark is going to lay this out and he is going to present this, he's doing this to show us that Christ has power over the physical. And to do that, he's going to put, point us in this narrative, in this story. He's going to point us on, on several different ways to highlight the power of Christ. The first thing that Mark does here in this passage is he focuses on her condition. He focuses on her condition. If you look back up there in verse 25, it says, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, this is a family-friendly environment. 
what the Bible is saying and what Mark is saying, and there's a woman that had suffered. There was a woman that was being tormented. There was a woman that was dealing with a constant struggle day in and day out for 12 years. You see, as he, he is putting this, I don't know if there's any significant about the 12 years as much as to say this woman had been going through something that may should only have lasted a few days. It's something that she has been dealing with for 12 years. There was physical suffering and there was physical torment, but it gets even much worse than that. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 15, you will see that God giving Moses the law talks about how they are to treat the impurity of the discharge, especially related to menstrual cycle. And if you go back to Leviticus 15, it says that that woman, that woman that goes through that monthly time, that goes through that season, that while she's in that, she is impure. The bed she sleeps on is impure. The people that come in contact with her is impure. Her husband is not allowed to contact her. She's not allowed to be in the presence of God's people, especially in the synagogue or in the holy places. There is no way that she's allowed to go because during that time, she is considered to be unclean and unpure. So when Mark gets here in verse 25 and he sets this up, you and I in our Western mindset, we may look at this and go, okay, we just read right past and we fail to understand the magnitude of what verse 25 means. In just one sentence, he talks about her condition. She was a woman that was dealing with physical suffering and torment. She was a woman that was in isolation and derision. In that state of uncleanness, in that state of impurity, she was considered not necessarily an outcast, but she was considered as someone that had to stay away. She was considered as someone that couldn't be around normal population if you came in contact with her. Now you were unclean and now you had to go through the ritualness of being made clean. If you were a husband, you could not get close to her. Otherwise, you would be unclean and you would there be forfeiting the opportunity to go to the temple and offer the offerings and sacrifices. No one could have anything to do with her. She was isolated from her family. She's isolated from her community. She's isolated from her family or from her relationships. She is isolated from worship. Not just that, Mark says in verse 26. And then only she dealt with the discharge of the blood for 12 years. She had suffered much under many physicians, spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. It's Mark's way of explaining that her condition was not just suffering and tormenting. Her condition was not just isolation and derision. But her condition was hopeless. You have a woman in a state of impurity and uncleanness for 12 years. And the hopelessness that might come across a person when they don't think there's any, there's any hope in tomorrow. If you have been tempted to give up, you fight a struggle, you're in a circumstance, you're in a situation, you're, you're trying to move in a, in a certain way of life, you're trying to uh, lead for change, you're trying to do something different physically, you're trying to do something different emotionally, you're trying to do something different relationally, you're trying to do something different vocationally, and you get to that point that you just get tired of the fight, you get tired of the battle, and you just want to give up. I wonder, as I'm reading this text, I wonder how many times this woman over the last 12 years asked herself the question. I wonder how many times she asked herself the question, What's wrong with me? Why doesn't God do something? 
people do not understand. People can't relate. How many times in the last 12 years had she gotten to the point that she had been tempted to say, I'm just going to quit and stop trying? I have not found a place yet in Scripture where God commands us to give And see, sometimes we're tempted to think the give up is just not trying anymore. No, the give up is actually a choice. The give up is saying, you know what? I'm going to stop from going in this direction that I think I should go, and I'm just going to go into a different direction. The temptation of give up is always there. And here in the text, Mark says, do you understand? This condition was her identity. This condition was how people knew her. This condition is who she was. And sometimes you and I are tempted to think in this world that our conditions define us. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, Paul is writing, he's, he's talking about that he had received this thorn in the flesh. And, and he had, it wasn't something that he behaved himself into. It wasn't something that was a result of an on-the-job accident. It wasn't the result of something that he was born with. It was something that he was afflicted with after his conversion to Christianity. After him converting to being a follower of Jesus Christ, God put this affliction on him. And if you go back to Mark chapter 12 and you read it, what he comes to understand is the condition, the affliction was not who he was, but the condition and the affliction was an opportunity. It was an opportunity to be reminded of his need and his desperation, his dependency upon God. You see, sometimes we see these conditions, sometimes they're the result. I leave church and I walk up there to Bev's and I walk across Bev's, the, the highway, and I walk onto the turnpike and I get out in front of one of those trucks that Charles Davis is now driving and that thing careens toward me and it wipes me out. My condition is a result of my dumb behavior. And sometimes the condition that we find ourselves is a result of our dumb behavior. Sometimes the condition that we find ourselves is is an opportunity for us to trust and to look to Christ. Sometimes the conditions we find ourselves is a reminder that we are not the answer, that we are there to trust and depend upon God. And so Mark says, notice when we think about the power of Christ, especially the power of Christ or the physical, notice how he frames this in verse 25 and verse 26, talking about her condition. But then he goes on in verse 27 and he talks about her pursuit. He said, verse 27, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. So when you think about this, you're sitting here reading and going, so you have a woman that is unclean. You have a woman that is impure. You have a woman that is, that is not allowed in social settings. You have a woman that has d- dealt with this for years and years and years. And yet somewhere, someone told her about Jesus. Someone had told her about Jesus. And in that conversation, we're not privy to what was said or how it was said or, or the things that were said. But we do know that somewhere in that conversation, someone had told her about Jesus, and she believed that he was hope. So she said, and this is my sanctified imagination, this is Spence's paraphrase, so she said, despite the embarrassment of being that person, despite the shame of being that person, Despite what people might say about me and the whispers people might have about me, I am going to Jesus. 
See, some of the things that I think sometimes keeps us from repenting and confessing our sins to one another and some of the reasons why we struggle with being vulnerable and open and honest with one another about our struggles and our problems is because I don't want to tell you who I am and what I am because you might think less of me. And I'm more concerned about your opinion of me than my relationship with the Lord Jesus so so that I will sit there and I will isolate myself and I will hide myself and I won't then be a benefit from the fellowship and the encouragement and the help from you because I'm all worried about being secretive and the embarrassment and the shame is greater than my need for holiness. And so we come to church. We play Christian ping pong. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And none of us are fine. Had a conversation just yesterday with my children. Because there's times that I will use them from this position. But I told them. It's never meant to embarrass them. It's never meant to call them out. I try to be very careful, especially as they get older, not to name them by names. But I said it's paramount that fathers in the room don't feel like they're the only ones that deal with struggles. It's important that mothers in the room don't think that their child's the only child that's disobedient and rebellious. It's needed for us to know that as we're in this room this morning, that marriages are constantly being attacked by Satan. It's important for us to know that in our Christian life, that you are not the only one that struggles being consistent in your time with the Lord. It's important that we understand that it's not a matter of you being perfect and not a matter of you being spotless. It's a matter of you understanding that as we gather here, we have the benefit of one another coming alongside saying, we're not going to say that's okay. We're not going to say that's all right. But we will tell you that we are, you are not alone. And it stops us from pursuing after Christ. So what does it say there in the text? She heard these reports, verse 27. She came up behind him. She touched him. Why? Verse 20, Mark explains, even if I touch or if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Someone had told her about Jesus. She believed that he was hope after all she had been through, and she went to Jesus. So I think it begs the question of us this morning, where do we go? Where do we go when we face trials? Where do we go when we face problems? Where do we go when we face struggles? Where do we go when we feel like the world has punched us in the mouth? Where do we go? You know, so many times our, our, our priorities in our lives, we talked about this last Friday uh, in, in a group that I'm in, a Bible study group that I'm in, we... The, these priorities are important because these priorities then frame what we pursue. And these pursuits are important because they then reveal the priorities of our life. And sometimes, sometimes you can have the right motivation, but looking in the wrong direction. Just this morning as I was looking over these notes, I thought of that song, and I, I, I don't remember exactly the name. Some of you may know, but the, the old country song, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. You know, and so, is that Keith Whitley? I don't, I don't remember. Who? Johnny Lee. Johnny Lee. Okay, so see? Yeah, see? I knew I was going to get it wrong, but I had to take a chance. Okay, so, but it's the idea. It's the idea that sometimes, sometimes we find ourselves in a need. And the question is, where do we go? 
She found herself in a need. Now, as Mark is saying, Mark is saying that she had tried for 12 years and, and she had not found hope or help in any of those areas. And 12 years later, she's going to Jesus. Now, you may say, oh, well, Spence, you see there, she, had, she didn't go to him first. Well, you know, there's kind of a caveat here is the fact that Jesus wasn't there 12 years ago. He's just now coming on the scene. She finds herself saying, I'm going to go to Jesus. Sometimes we find ourselves in need. Sometimes we find ourselves in struggle. Sometimes we find ourselves in stress. Sometimes we find ourselves in crisis. Where do we go? Yes, we can go to Jesus. So Mark lays it out there and says this is what she did. She went to him. Verse 29, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was immediately healed of her Disease. So Mark says, notice her condition, notice her pursuit. Now look at his response. Jesus. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, he immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now you can find a lot of ink on paper arguing about that phrase. Because there'll be some people that will say, well, wasn't Jesus fully God? Therefore, he knew everything. He had all knowledge. He knew exactly who had touched him and who hadn't touched him. If, God is, if Jesus is fully God, then he would know. Yes, but at the same time, Jesus is also fully man. So there's a certain amount of humanity being present where he feels that this power, as it says in verse 29, or sorry, verse 30, that this power had come out from him. So you sit there and we'll say, is he God or is he man? Yes, he is both. Well, I don't understand how that works. We'll get in line. But what does it say there in the text? Mark just says that Jesus sensed that this power of healing had gone out from him, and he turned around and he asked, who touched me? I put there in your notes, his response, Jesus' response, and he knew. He knew that someone had touched him. He knew that someone had been restored. He knew that someone had been healed. Yes, he's fully God, and yes, he's fully man, but more important than that, he knew. He knew what, Spence? He knew that someone had touched him? Yes, he knew that someone had touched him, but I think that Mark is showing us that he knew more even that. He knew what she needed. And he knew that she had received what she needed, sort of. So it says, there in the, it says there in the text, he asked the question, who touched me? The disciples don't realize what's going on. They're not privy to all the, the details. And so they look at him in verse 31 and go, do you not understand? You got hundreds, tens, hundreds, maybe even thousands of people all pressing around you. And you're, you're wondering who touched me? That's kind of a silly idea. And he says, no, no, somebody touched me. And then in verse 32, what does he do? I underline this in my Bible. And he looked. So you see the response of Christ. He knew and he looked. Luke chapter 18 in his account in the gospel, he, he makes a statement, I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 15 and verse 8. And he says, the Son of Man, talking about Christ, came to seek and save the lost. Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned and, and fallen away from their state of holiness and perfection, God comes into the garden in the cool of the day. And what does he do? He starts saying, Adam, where are you? Christ is sitting there in the crowd here in Mark chapter 5, and he's looking around. He, he knew, he knew that someone had touched him. He knew that someone had been healed of the physical affliction. He knew that someone needed ministering to. He knew the condition of the people that were there, and he looked. He looked for the woman, verse 32. He looked around to see who had 
done it. But this is where it gets so cool in verse 33 because the woman realizes that she has been caught. Nobody knows except for her and Jesus. She sees him looking around. She comes up and she testifies. She explains, this is what has happened to me. And in verse 34, he says this, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, I said that she was healed of her affliction, sort of, because here in the English translation, it doesn't do justice to the way that it is written in the original. In verse 34, when Jesus looks at her and says, daughter, your faith has made you well, you go back to the original, and it's better translated as your faith has saved you. See, I submit to you this morning that Jesus is not just talking about a physical need, he's talking about a spiritual need. He knew that she had a physical need. He knew that the physical problems she was dealing with. He knew the struggles that she had. But he also knew that she had faith to be saved. So often Satan uses physical conditions to distract us from spiritual needs. So often Satan uses physical afflictions to hinder our spiritual health. So many times Satan puts things, things in front of us to say, which are you going to pay more attention to, the temporal or the eternal? So what Jesus does there in verse 34 is he looks at her and says, your faith has made you well. He not only restored her physically, but he restored her spiritually. And you see that this idea that he says, this is your faith. First uh, Corinthians 13 and 13, Paul talks about this. He says that faith, hope, and love, the rest of the things, they will pass. The rest of these things will be off in the sunset, but faith, hope, and love, these things endure. And so Christ looks at her and doesn't say it's because that you got out of the house today and came and looked at me. He doesn't say it's because you touched my garment. He doesn't say it's because someone told you. He doesn't say it's because you had the boldness to acknowledge what I have done for you. He comes up to her and says, what made the difference? What made the difference was not man. What made the difference was not her. What made the difference was not her actions. What made the difference was her faith. And so many times we trade in our faith in the promises and the goodness and the faithfulness of God for the things that we can get captivated going on around us physically. We can miss the spiritual because we become, become fixated on the physical. So how do we take this passage and then apply it here today? How do we take this passage and then incorporate it into the ministry of this church? We've talked about uh, the core values of this church, to build families, teach the Bible, be the church. How do we take a passage like this? And, and if Mark is writing this to be a message, a message to us for us to share with someone else. How do we take this and then someone's saying, okay, so then incorporate this in 2024. How do I then take this passage and apply it to ministry? Well, three things and we're done. The first thing is this. Families in crisis need Now, here in the text, the woman's had this discharge for 12 years. She's been struggling for 12 years. She had gone to the physicians, and sometimes, I don't know if they used the word then, but they use the word today. It's a common word that is an unbiblical word, and it's the word cope. 
You see, there was probably maybe some times that they said that we can mask the symptoms. Sometimes they may have said that we can hide the symptoms, but they not, were not able to deal with the problem. And we have families today that are in crisis. And we have families today that are struggling and they are being buffeted against by the culture. They're being buffeted against by society. They're being buffeted against by the rhetoric in the community. And they're being buffeted against saying, this is what you should do. This is how you should act. This is how you should believe. This is how you should proceed. And so you have parents today that are being informed of how they should raise their children, not based upon biblical principles, but based upon godless ideologies. Just finished reading this book. Some of you might pull your toes in. The title of the book is The Case Against Conversion Therapy, written by, published by, endorsed by the American Psychological Association. And on first blush, you, re, you look at this book and you go, hey, they're making a statement against the efforts for people to change their identity. In other words, if I'm a male and I want to be a female, well, there's that conversion therapy that's out there that will help me convert from being a male to what I want to be as a female. And so I thought, I thought when I picked this book up, they are making the case to saying, hey, that isn't helpful, that isn't hurt, that, that is hurtful, and that is harmful. And so I'm going, wow, would the American Psychological Association really take a position against what mainstream seems to be promoting? So you get into the book. And it makes a statement like this. Psychology and traditional faiths have contrasting views about the same-sex orientation and gender diversity. Psychological research has found that sexual orientation and gender diversity are normal aspects of human diversity. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. You're not going to tell me that Sexual orientation and gender diversity, and when they're using these words, they're saying it to mean that a, uh, a, a, a corruption of or a perversion of, that these things are just aspects, normal aspects of human diversity. No, it's not. And then later on in a chapter that I really enjoyed, it talked about how people that are struggling with their identity and their orientation, yet are in a religious organization, how should they respond? I'm just going to read what it says. Many secular mental health professionals may find it, professionals may find it difficult to understand or believe that clients who come from religious tradition, affiliations, and groups that reject their sexual orientation and behavior may not want to leave these communities. Therapists may suggest that their clients can resolve these conflicts and challenges simply by finding a more accepting and accommodating religious community and tradition. For example, a Roman Catholic might turn to the Episcopal or the Lutheran church. An Orthodox Jew might re join a Reform synagogue. And a Mormon might join a non-denominational church. What is this book saying? This book is saying that people that deny and rebel against the creation order of God are normal. And anybody that thinks differently is the problem. 
And I may say, well, Spence, why are you making such a big deal of that? Because the American Psychological Association and the American Psychiatric Association, their influences, teachings, writings, curriculum as a teaching, are pervasive in our society. Their teachings, writings, and instruction is pervasive in our local school systems. They are present in our workplaces. They are present in our doctor's offices. They are present in Christian counseling rooms. They are pervasive everywhere where they are promoting there and they're presenting a unbiblical view of man and sexuality. Our, Christ, our families are in crisis and they need hope. They don't need garbage like that. They need hope. They need hope that this is what the Bible says. They need hope that this is the help and the hope of Scripture. They need hope to say this is what God has said and this is what is true. They need hope. They don't need cope. So Mark says, do you understand that, yes, the physical is even under the power and control of Christ. That means all of the physical ailments, the sufferings, the torments, all these things that are going on in the current decade that people are dealing with. Yes, Christ has power over all those things. And not only that, we also need to understand as a church that the Bible only has one answer. They only, the Bible only has one answer. The answer is not you. You, the answer is not human, humanism. The answer is not Man's ideologies or man's philosophies. The answer is God. The answer is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. You may say, well, Spence, that is way too simplistic. What if it's not? What if it's not? Maybe what if the Bible says your faith in Christ will inform how you react to the world? And you may say, well, Spence, you don't understand. I've been dealing with this for years and years and years and years, but you haven't been dealing with it for an eternity. Maybe the biggest question is, is where you stand with the Lord and not where you stand with your doctor. And the Bible only has one answer. Faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So that's helpful when we find these times of suffering and these times of struggling because we understand that faith is revealed in trials. Please don't think that I'm making light of or I'm making little of suffering, struggles, circumstances, plights. I'm not saying that your problems are not real problems. And I'm not saying your problems aren't big problems. And I'm not saying that your problems do not matter. And I'm not trying to tell you that your problems nobody cares about. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying this morning is sometimes we have an opportunity, even in the midst of our trials, to demonstrate and be a testimony and a witness to the faith that we have in God. For 12 years, the woman dealt with a debilitating condition. She dealt with a condition that not only afflicted her and affected her physically, but it afflicted her and affected her spiritually. For 12 years, she suffered. For 12 years, she dealt with. For 12 years, she sought answers. For 12 years, she asked questions. For 12 years, she struggled so that one day she could come up behind this guy named Jesus. She could touch his garment. She could be restored. And she, she could be an example of how Christ has power over the physical. And now 2,000 years later, this woman is now in heaven looking and saying, oh, praise the Lord that I was used by God in such a way. You think, you think her focus now is on the 12 years or her focus is on the last 2,000 years? 
I'm not trying to make light of the situations in this room. I'm not trying to make light of the things that you're dealing with. But understand that our faith is revealed in our trials. Our faith is not revealed when it's sunny and easy. Our faith is revealed when it's hard. I don't know what happened to the supply of gravel in Lincoln County. I'm, I'm going to connect this. Don't worry. I'm, I'm going I'm I'm, I'm, I'm to connect this. I don't know what happened to supply of gravel. But I'm thinking about going in with Evan Green and we're going to start a gravel business. Because there's definitely a need. <laughs> there's definitely a need for some gravel. When I'm driving these dirt roads, I got my little two-wheel drive quarter-ton truck, Allie's driveway, Evan's driveway, just on the road in general these days. And it's nice and sunny, and the grader just came by and made his best attempt to do something with it. Man, it's easy to just drive, and it look like this thing is a monster truck. Man, I'm driving right along. I tell the boys, I'm gonna, I'm, I've called it the Velociraptor because it is so mean and impressive and intimidating. And, and so I'm driving this thing, and when it is sunny and the roads are dry and level and smooth, man, I, I, this thing looks like a monster truck. It'll just take me anywhere. It'll go anywhere. It'll do anything. All I got to do is hit the gas, and I'm going. It's easy for it to look like a show truck in the sun. This last week, it's not been a good week for the Velociraptor. <laughs> it's not been its best time. Its ground clearance isn't what it could be. Its drivetrain is not what it could be. And it wasn't built for Lincoln County roads in a famine of gravel. So you get on some of these roads, and I'm sitting there, and you feel like you're going from rut to rut, from bog to bog, and you hit the mud puddle, and it splashes up, and it covers the windshield, and that's going. And it, it, You find out what the vehicle can do when you put it to the test. Now, I'm proud to report this morning that there has not been a chain, rope, strap, or anything attached to the front of that truck since I have been driving it. Shelly can't say the same thing, but I'm going to tell you for Chevy Land. Oh, you can. Okay, so, well, that's a fluke. But, but it's one of those things. I, I, can just, I can just tell you, though, that all this week I have, I have not wound up making a phone call saying, please come get my fat out of the fire. Not happened. But I will tell you, as you have driven, you know that these conditions today test not only your ability to navigate, your ability to operate, and the ability of the equipment you're working with. You're working with. It's tested in times of trials. Where do you get in Scripture that your faith will never be tested? Where do you get in Scripture that every day is going to be sunny and 60 degrees? Where do you get in Scripture that the easiest way for you to be a testimony of the goodness and the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of God is when you never have a problem. Where do you get that? I can show you place after place where I can show you it's quite the opposite. And even here, her faith is revealed in the trials. So maybe it's not a matter of you coming and saying, well, Spence, she got healed, so I want to get healed, so now we need to have a healing service. 
says in the place. You say, well, she got healed. Why can't I get healed? Take that up with the healer. But until then, know that whatever you face, will face, have faced, are facing, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to deepen, to practice, and to demonstrate our faith in God. Christ has sovereignty and authority over creation. He has sovereignty and authority over even the demonic. As Mark shows us this morning, he has sovereignty, authority, and power even over the physical. So the invitation for you this morning is just to simply ask yourself, are there things in your life that you're not trusting by faith in? I don't know the situations that is all represented in this room, but I do know that Every single one of us struggle with that. Every single one of us struggles with temptation. Every single one of us struggles with, is he enough in this moment? Is there someone here this morning that needs to practice the faith of the woman? Be honest about your condition. Pursue after Jesus and trust in his response. If you bow your head with me. Thank you for joining us today at FBC Wellston. We would love to hear from you or connect with you. If you will visit our website at fbcwellston.org, please let us know if we can serve you in any way, and we look forward to connecting with you in the future.